I don't come from anything. <laughs> you know, I didn't start on third base and thought, convinced myself I had a triple. Like that didn't happen, <laughs> right? I, um, I, I literally lived with rats and have been poor and went to bed hungry and had holes in my shoes and wore the same jeans three days a week. Like, I know that life. It also gives me a sense of comfort, right? Knowing that the profession, the profession can't pay me enough money to be happy. Because happiness doesn't come from money for me. We didn't have anything growing up, but I had a really close family. So I felt love, I felt complete. Um, and I tell people all the time, I told my AD this, like the second week on the job, he asked me, what do, we, what do you want to do about this contract? I told him, and I meant this, you can pay me whatever you want. I'll probably do it for less than whatever you are willing to pay me, honestly. And I told him when we had a conversation later on about the standards of our program and whether some guys aren't going to make it. Not everybody's going to make it because we're not going to lower the standards to help you make it. Not doing that. So you're going to have to raise your level to meet the standards. We're going to give you a chance. But at some point, if you don't get up to these standards, then you won't be a part of it. And he said, you sure? That's a good idea. I said, listen, if we can't do it this way, I'll do something else. Because I'm not going to leave this job and look my God in the face and tell him that I didn't do what he put me here to do, which wasn't to win basketball games. I was hired by you to win basketball games, but I'm here to serve the Lord. I want to create something that I wish my younger self could have had when I first entered the profession, which is a platform to serve and impact the next generation of coaches. Young coaches, young professionals, young leaders, they need to see black faces and they need to um, know their story. Personal lives are generally publicized within our profession. So our platform will be very unique because our guests will all share their powerful stories to help our listeners unlock their potential greatness. What's up, guys? We are back. Um, I know that it has been a while. It's been a while. Uh, we apologize, but we gave y'all everything we could give y'all in 2020. Um, but I must say, we have been holding back. Man, we got the, this next round of Black excellence we got coming for y'all is going to be just crazy. Um, for this episode here, we got Mike Boyton. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm super excited to unpack this episode. And the reason why is like one reason is that this episode helped me, you know, happy new year to everybody. And, you know, your season is probably going crazy. We done got back to regular life and I needed to hear this, what was happening, like what, what we discussed in, in this episode here with the one and only Mike Boyan. So the first thing that I really enjoyed about you know, I, I just feel like I related to his story so much. Um, I love how he was super confident in his journey and in himself. Uh, one thing that he pointed out, you know, as professionals in, in this in this profession is that a lot of times we think we have to be something that we're not. And he just was really adamant about being comfortable um, in his own skin and, and saying, if I can't be myself in, in this area, then maybe the area 
or that job or that um, that environment isn't for me. And I just think that's that's super huge. And it takes a lot of confidence to kind of believe that and to navigate um, your you know professional experience in that way. Another thing I loved about Mike Boyton is that um, his his approach to leadership. Um, you know, he, he said leadership is about helping, is about serving others, um, and that you you your responsibility as a leader is to set the vision. But you know, you can't really set that vision unless you understand who you have on your team and who you're helping. So he um, he was big on listening versus um, dictating, and you know, I I've witnessed a lot of coaches or leaders in general just get that wrong. The third thing I really, really loved about him is how he was adamant about um, making sure his players understood themselves outside of their sport. Um, And he did that by one, setting example, setting example himself. So, you know, when he spent time with his, when he spent time with his players, he don't just want them to see him as a coach. He wants um, them to see him as a husband, as a father and all those things. And he's willing to, um, be vulnerable with them and kind of show them that part of his life. It's crazy, Ish, because it's like, obviously, what well, we're 10 episodes in um, with a lot, lot more to go. And it seems like after every single one we do, we come away and it's like, man, that was one of my favorite ones. That was one of my favorite ones. That was the best one. Um, and that's not to take anything from many of our guests. It's just the the lessons that we continue to learn from each and every one of these individual people. And as we interviewed Mike and really just had, you know, so much transparent, authentic, the conversation, man, just, it, it was just such a breath of fresh air for me to hear. You know what I mean? Like, especially at the time of my life, you know, obviously I've made it known that I grew up with our father, right? But to talk to a man like him, to talk about how he obviously had his father present in his life, right? And he had a lot of friends growing up that did not have a lot of, that did not have a father present in their life, but how those guys kind of flocked to his dad and called him pops. You know what I mean? And he talked about how he, he basically recognized it, but it was hard for him to understand it, you know, what those guys went through until really he got older you know what I mean and I think that for me to hear the lessons that he learned from his dad um and then how he tries to take that information now and apply it to some of his players that are fatherless to help them see what it what it's like to be a husband a father and a coach I mean again like for, like I said for a young man like myself man it was it was super refreshing um because I tell you for me how I look at Mike you know you see him a lot on the road um and you watch him and it's like, you're talking about somebody that's comfortable in their own skin. Uh, he's the true epitome of that. You know what I mean? Especially as a black head coach, he's not afraid to be different. He's not afraid to walk in a gym. All right. With a, with a fitted, with a fitted cap on his head, with a pair of J's on his feet. And no matter who's looking at him, no matter what they say, he's going to be unapolog- unapologetically himself. You know what I mean? That that's to me is what, the true definition of black excellence is not being afraid of being yourself. And that's what I loved. And that's the information I continue to gather as I continue to learn a lot about him throughout this conversation. You know what I mean? I'm going to tell you, I just said it to you before we started. Can't judge a book by its cover. 
You know what I mean? I mean, the man grew up in Brooklyn, New York. You think in Brooklyn, New York, you thinking this man going to be rough around the edges, tough, mean, don't got no probably a true vulnerable bone in his body. And the fact that he was able to talk about it and said, man, showing vulnerability and compassion and emotion ain't a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. Right. If I love a man, I'm going to tell this man I love him. Why would I not do that? And I think we need to continue to hear that. You know, you got some people in this world that understand it and they're not afraid to let someone know that they care about them, they love them. But it's like, we have to continue to do that. Life is short. You know what I mean? You don't know if you get the opportunity to say you love somebody tomorrow or why wait until it's the last minute and you're on your deathbed or in a position where, you know, they may not be able to hear you say it. You know what I mean? And so especially coming through this year of 2020, you know, and going through a lot of the unknowns, it was just, it's a blessing to be able to start 2021 with this, with this interview and this authentic conversation with Mike Boynton, because I'm telling you, you guys going, you're going to love it. I mean, you're going to love it. You know what I mean? And it's going to make you, if you don't know who Mike Boynton is, you're going to become a fan today. You know what I mean? And, and, and again, it was a blessing for us to have the opportunity, not only to, to get to know him, but to be able to have this platform to get a chance for you guys to really get to know who the true Mike Boynton is. And so I'm excited for it, man. Man, me too. Uh, and you, you, you said it perfectly. Um, they're going to, they're going to become a fan today. Uh, and you know, you'll, you'll start looking at, you know, maybe look at yourself in a different light, maybe value yourself a little bit more. Cause this is what this interview is about. And it's also what, you know, this platform is about is, you know, bringing light to black excellence and treating each other like we're queens and kings because that's what we are. I, we ain't going to unpack this anymore. It is impossible for us to give a summary of the value that you're going to get from this interview. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome back. Uh, we got some good stuff going. Get your pen, get your notebook out. And here you go, Coach Mike Boyan. We are here with Mike Boyton, head men's basketball coach at Oklahoma State. Welcome to the show, Coach. Thanks, Aisha. I appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to having this discussion with you and Nick. And it uh, should be fun. This is the Black Excellence in Sports podcast, where we highlight those who we believe have demonstrated Black excellence. We want to use their voice, their story, and their testimony to inspire others to unlock their greatness. Coach, how would you define Black excellence? What comes to mind when, when you hear that term? You know, it's, it's interesting because this, this is a question I try to pose to my players about a month ago. Um, and, and I kind of knew what, what they would say, right? Immediately, 18, 19, 20, 20-year-old 20 black college athletes. You know, LeBron James, <laughs> Michael Jordan, uh, Kobe Bryant. Uh, and, and I tried to tell them, you know, I, I respect all that. I was an athlete. I grew up idolizing athletes as well. Uh, but it's well beyond that. And so just as a definition, I think it's just any black person who's making a positive impact, right, on their communities and on the people that they can affect, uh, on people who are really intentional about using what they've learned in their life uh, to enhance the experience of the people that are coming behind them. Um, and so it's not limited to an athlete or a famous person, right? It is truly, um, my granddad was somebody I looked up to. He drove a taxi cab in New York City. Like he wasn't famous. Nobody outside our family really knew him, uh, but, but that's black excellence, right? He, he worked his way up into owning his own uh, medallion, which is a big deal in the taxi cab world. 
uh, and becoming an influential person, uh, somebody I admired because I knew what he did every day to supply an opportunity for his family. And so for me, black excellence is, you know, being proud of, you know, who you are, unapologetically going out and, and saying, I'm, I'm proud to be a black man who can walk anywhere on this earth and be comfortable and have success uh, in any uh, form of, of profession. And so I think of it way outside of the athletic realm, although I know, right, those are the big faces and, and names that we know. It's way bigger than that in my mind. Coach, you touched on your grandfather. Can you highlight um, some people in your life that has demonstrated black excellence? Yeah, it always starts at home for me. Uh, my granddad, my, 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 uh, my mom's father uh, is the one who drove a New York City taxi cab uh, really for the majority of his life. And, um, you know, again, provided for him, his family, his wife and kids. Uh, my mom was the baby of 10. Um, and so big family, right? Uh, and then my dad, right? Probably the next person, maybe even before my granddad, to be honest, my dad was somebody who still to this day is probably my best friend. Um, and we had a unique relationship in the sense that I was really young when I realized that I was fortunate that my dad was in my life, right? I grew up probably with five or six other males around my age playing basketball in my neighborhood. And I was the only one whose dad was present at home um, and, and, and home every day and, and lived there and, and, and provided for my sisters and I, four sisters and no brothers. So my dad was somebody I, I admired. Um, when I first got the head coaching job at Oklahoma State, there was a re local reporter who did the story about three months into my tenure. Uh, and he tracked every, every day of what I did. And, and he kind of finally sat me down and said, you know, you've worked like 114 straight days. You know, why is that? And I said, to be honest, I never thought about it. Right. All I was doing was following my dad's lead. Like every day I woke up as a kid, I watched my dad get ready to go to work. It didn't. And I'm sure some days he was sick. Some days he didn't feel like going. He just got up and did what he was supposed to do uh, to provide for his family. Uh, but in, in, certainly in my career as an athlete and a coach, there have been guys that I've, I've looked up to and admired and, and tried to uh, emulate, to be honest. Uh, one of my biggest mentors in college basketball or in, in the basketball world is George Raveling, uh, former coach at USC in Iowa. Um, really took me under his wing when I was about 18 years old um, and helped me kind of navigate this coaching business. Uh, coach Rav's a, a unbelievable icon in our game. Uh, was ahead at Nike grassroots basketball for a long time. Uh, but another guy who I'm not sure he knows that he's somebody I admired or, or I looked at as a mentor because we don't have a personal relationship to that degree is Leonard Hamilton. Uh, Coach Hamilton has been around this game for a long time. And prior to me, uh, and I'm the second black head coach in men's basketball at Oklahoma State, Coach Hamilton was the first black coach to be the head coach at Oklahoma State. And so just to be able to kind of follow his path and see the success that he's continued to have, you know, being authentic and, and doing things in a way that guys respect him uh, for what he is. So those would be some guys that I would highlight. Coach, I want you to unpack this a little bit for me. Um, because like, you know, to me, I'm one of, I hate to say typical, but I grew up without a father, right? So can you talk about the importance of growing up with a father? and then the significant difference you saw with the guys that didn't have a father. And then 
on top of that, I want you to answer this. How do you apply the lessons that your father taught you to maybe some of the guys that you recruit that probably are fatherless? Yeah, it's real deep, right? And, and, it, and this, this may take the whole rest of the podcast, to be honest, but it's, but it's, it's real. Um, like I said, I grew up with probably five or six guys like that I was really close with. And I was the only one whose dad was present daily in his life. Um, and, and it's interesting that I'm not sure I understood it. I recognized it, but I'm not sure I understood it when I was 12, 13, 14. And all the guys would look up to my dad and call him pops, you know, or come to the house on Sundays to watch wrestling or, you know, whatever. Get in the car and we all ride out after AAU game and, and he'd drop everybody off because, you know, their dads didn't do that. Um, and I'm not sure I understood it all the way through till, till I started coaching. And I think I started to understand it more. And it wasn't until I became the father of a boy that it really hit me. Um, and, and you just start to see how much a little boy looks up to his father. Um, and, and my daughter's different, right? She loves me. I think she would... She would marry me if she could, <laughs> but she can't. My son, he loves me, but it's so deeper than that. Like he, he doesn't want to be like me. He, he wants to be me right now. He's seven years old. When I come in the house and take my shoes off, he takes his shoes off and puts them exactly where I put mine. If I have a hat on walking around in the neighborhood, he wants to wear a hat. If I take my shirt off and I walk out in the back, he wants to come out in the back and wear, without a shirt. Like, and so you just kind of look like, man, he's watching everything I do. He's taking all of his cues from me. So how do I couch that? He needs to see from me what a responsible man does relative to work, relative to my relationship with my wife, relative to my relationship with him and his sister, uh, and, and relative to my relationship with the players on my team. And in the same vein, I want any of the players who didn't have that example in their house to see that. When they come to my house for a, fam for a dinner as a team, I want them to see me hug my wife and show compassion to a woman and to tell her that I love her and it be okay. Because so many times we're, we're kind of taught that you don't do that. Right? We don't we don't show compassion. We don't we don't allow emotion to be real, right? We put on this facade that nothing bothers us. No, I tell those kids because it's okay for me to tell another man who I love that I love him. That I that I that I, it's okay for me to challenge him also and tell him what you're doing right now isn't isn't advancing your life. Um, and so I don't. That's probably in my mind my my number one greatest responsibility is as a father, not only to my son, but certainly first and foremost to my own son, but to the guys that I coach. And, and the opportunity that many of them have been raised, some of them by mothers and fathers, but most of, a lot of them by just mothers. And my opportunity to kind of show them the first example, maybe the only example of a consistent present man in their life and what that looks like every day, um, damn the wins and losses. <laughs> if I do that, then I won. Coach, we know um, it could be, you know, a little bit challenging to navigate your, to navigate through this world as a black man. Um, how important is it for your players to know that you have their back? 
Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes in line with what you said, uh, what, what we were just talking about. They, they need support. Like, they need to know that someone doesn't just see them as an athlete. Um, and for me, it starts in recruiting. It, it, it's interesting. I, I'm not better than anybody. I've got a long way to go. I don't even know how long I'll be coaching, right? Because if we don't win enough, I'll be doing something else for a living. That's the reality of this profession. Um, but I can't ever escape the fact that I have a chance every day to make an impact on that exactly, what their experience, how they feel about themselves, uh, and how they value themselves. And so many of them value only their athletic ability because that's the only way people view them. Uh, what I have to do is say, no, who you are isn't what you do. Those are two totally separate things. Right. And so it's, it, it bothers me often when I hear people say stick to sports. Uh, it's kind of disrespectful in my mind because no one is what they do. <laughs> what they do might be important to them, but that doesn't define anyone. And it doesn't make you less um, capable of thinking about something that you don't necessarily do for a living or the fact that those things impact your life. Um, and so supporting these guys, listening to them, uh, being uh, willing to, to understand that the struggles they have, the pressures that they feel uh, in the, in, out there in the world, social media is different than it was when I played, really didn't exist when, in 2000 to 2004 when I was in college, right? And, and even though I think sometimes that, that that's such a false sense of reality, both good and bad, we can't escape it, right? We just can't be consumed by it. So what I tell them every day is, you know, you're wonderfully made. Like, you guys are kings. And, and don't let basketball define you as a person. Don't allow people to only tell you that the only way you can be successful is if you get drafted, because that's not true. It's also very unrealistic that it's going to happen. So how else can you define yourself? You guys can be engineers. You can be a CEO. You can be a doctor. If you put your same dedication and um, your effort into to working at that as you do the basketball, you can do anything in this world. And so I think it's incredibly important that we continue to preach those messages, but that we also show them examples of black people doing those things. I think there are five heads of departments at Oklahoma State that are black males. It's important that my players see those guys so that they don't, they don't only think that Jay-Z, who is from Brooklyn like I am, I admire, right, is the only way you can be successful is to be an entertainer. That's not true. Coach Boyd, I want you to touch on this for me um, because you started talking a little bit about basically being vulnerable and showing these men within this profession on our platform that it's okay to show compassion and tell guys that I love you. Because again, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength, right? I think there's another thing though, when you talk about this platform and this profession that people try to avoid and that's their faith, right? They try to hide that. They try to just, they try to, you know, divide that. It's That's in one part of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I don't really talk about that or deal with that in this part of my life. You seem like a man of, of a strong faith. Right. And obviously you don't talk about it. You're not perfect. You don't have all the answers and, and none of us are. But how do you display that to your guys? Not just in life, but, you know, especially in the profession, because I think it needs to be seen a lot more. I totally agree. Uh, in fact, if I'm being perfectly honest, which I don't I don't really know how to do no other way. I wasn't always this way. <laughs> I was that 18, 19 year old kid, too, that, you know, and, and I'll even go back further when I was younger. 
uh, my dad's mom, my grandmother, I hated to go to her house on the weekend because my parents didn't always go to church, but grandma always went to church. <laughs> and I didn't want to go to church on Sundays. I just, you know, thank you, God, but we're going to pray over dinner. And, you know, <laughs> if something bad happened, we're going to ask why. But I ain't really into sitting in no church for four hours either. Like, we're going to praise and worship for two and a half hours. I mean, y'all know, we're we going we to church. <laughs> we ain't just going to get the word. We're going to be part of this thing. Uh, and it took me a while to realize I was missing it. And my life was, was uh, there, there was a big void because I wouldn't embrace the, the most, um, the, the biggest part of my foundation. And so as I got started going through college, because my grandmother planted the seed that this was important, um, but I needed somebody to water it and nurture it. And, and I had a professor in college who's now one of my best friends in the world, uh, Pastor Christopher Levy Johnson, who actually is the chaplain at the University of South Carolina, where I went to school. Um, and he kept urging me, come to church, come, come listen to me pray. And he baptized me. Um, and, and really, you know, ever since then, I, I've been unapologetic about who I believe. Jesus died for me. You can't convince me no other way. Uh, and I'm here and I make mistakes every day and, and I have a chance to live because of the sacrifice, right? And I don't hide that from my players. We talk openly about the Bible and, and I don't make anyone go to church, but I, um, I try to suggest it as often as I can. I go pick guys up because I want to eliminate all the excuses. I ain't got no ride coach. I ain't got no shoes. Let's go figure that out and come as you are, right? Just, just get up and go, start getting fed the word and let it, let it seed in your, in your soul. And so I think it's incredibly important that not just coaches, uh, but everybody that comes into interaction with these kids, uh, whether it be an academic advisor, a strength coach, a, a, an administrator, that they continue to let these kids know that you don't have all the answers, you're not in control. We're going through this pandemic in a lot of ways because we don't realize that. And some people are still fighting it. Uh, the economy can't save us. <laughs> We're leaving all this money here when it's time to go. So if we don't get right in the other parts of our life, then we're going to fall short. So uh, I would say, you know, find time every day. Pick a verse. Pick a, pick a, um, pick a chapter in the Bible. Try to learn. It, those lessons from thousands of years ago are still relevant. It's amazing right? How we can see things happening over and over again. But if we would just sit back and admire, God already wrote the script. We just gotta, we gotta listen and, and take our cues. I'll give you one example for me, um, how sometimes I still get off track. I'll be honest. So in 2014, no, 2013, I went to Stephen F. Austin as an assistant coach. I was there for three seasons. We won 89 games in three years. Went to the tournament every year. Um, Brad Underwood, who I was working for at the time, gets the head coaching job here at Oklahoma State. In my mind, I've been his lead assistant for three years. It's my time. Um, it's, it's time for me to be a head coach, right? It's a lower level school. That's what you do, promote the assistant coach. And for two weeks, um, I'm going to say I prayed, but I, I didn't really pray. I was just kind of telling God, like, all right, it's my turn, man. Like, I've been faithful. <laughs> you owe me this. Uh, and you know, long story short, I didn't get the job. And I was more disappointed professionally at that moment than I had been at any other point. Uh, and reluctantly came to Oklahoma State as an assistant coach, but I changed my mind from, from frustration to just do the work, right? 
and literally a year from the day that I was turned down from being the head coach at, at Stephen F. Austin, I was named the head coach at Oklahoma State. And only God could do that. That, that was written already. I didn't do anything different. I didn't come up to Oklahoma State even thinking about being a head coach. It never crossed my mind. I had never been to Oklahoma. <laughs> I was hoping I wasn't here that long. <laughs> and we make plans, but he prepares something different for us. And we got to just follow that along. And so I tell people all the time, you know, if, if it wasn't for God and I had my own way, I'd be the head coach at Oklahoma State. But he saw something bigger. He was whispering at the time, no, not right now. This isn't what's for you. Just, just wait. And I'm like, no, I waited long enough. <laughs> and if, you know, sometimes you got to let your plans go and just trust that, that he's got your back. And that's, that's the best example in my life right now. Coach, um, going back to your faith, uh, I love the, the fact that you, you brought up Leonard Hamilton and, and George Ravelin, um, because Leonard Hamilton, I heard Leonard Hamilton on a, on a podcast and him talking about his faith and the things that don't get talked about on ESPN was the thing that literally kind of inspired um, my thought that what this podcast could be, because I'm like, man, we need to hear more of this. Like we need to hear more black men, black women talking about, you know, the other things that make them successful. Um, but I want to ask you this, how do you prepare yourself as a leader? Um, what do you do to kind of get yourself ready to, to rock and roll every day and to, to carry yourself as a leader? Well, first of all, I believe leadership is about um, helping. Um, and so what I try to do is I try to listen more than I talk. Um, and so every day I get up and I go work out and I listen to some gospel music every single morning. I go work out at 6.30, listen to gospel music, and I read the Bible. Uh, and that's kind of, that sets an unbelievable tone for me. Um, but then, you know, I, I sit in a lot of meetings and most of the time I sit back and I, I want to observe the room and, and, and try to figure out how I can be most effective as a leader. And many times there's a perception that leadership is dictating. And, and in my mind, leadership is just being a partner with people, but, but you, you, you're in charge of, of, of the vision, the direction of the group. Um, but you don't know what other people are capable of until you understand them. Uh, and I can't be a good coach if I don't know the strengths and weaknesses of all the guys on my team and my staff, because my job is to put a plan together for us all to have success. And so I think it's probably the most uh, underrated part of leadership is the ability to listen to others and, and understand that you don't have all the answers and how to put people in position to help you. As a leader, the first thing you have to acknowledge is you need help. <laughs> I even tell guys on my team, so we, everybody's got team captains or team leaders or whatever. And I tell them all the time, you know, the only real thing that shows me that you're a leader isn't your age or your title. Do people follow you? And if no one's following you, you're not a leader. <laughs> you can call yourself leader and other people can think you're supposed to be the leader, but if no one's following your vision, your mission, trying to put those things in practice, then you're just a guy with a title. And unless you put those things in action, then it doesn't really matter. 
And that doesn't mean following you on Instagram either. <laughs> no. That's what no. that means. No, that's the new world, right? So I just got on Instagram about a, maybe a month ago. It was reluctant, reluctantly. Yeah, I still got a little old man in me. I'm, uh, I've done Twitter for a while, but Instagram was it's kind of too, um, too surface for me, right? There's just too much, right? Of the, um, you can present, present something on Instagram that you know in your heart isn't real. And it gives people a chance to project you in a way that you know isn't true. So, uh, but I do understand my responsibility to, to, to promote and recruits on there. So there's some, there's some professional um, benefits for me to be on there and observe, but I'm not, I'm not really big into the social media deal because I, I think it gives people a false sense of um, reality, right? It gives people a, a, um, a fake um, perception of themselves, right? Just because your picture get liked don't mean they like you. <laughs> they just might want to use that pose that you use, you know? And, and so it's hard for young people to discern those things and understand the difference between real love and, and, and internet love. Coach, I love how you started talking about the false sense. Talk, talk to our listeners how important it is to be authentic within this profession. Because you got a lot of people that want to try to imitate other people. And it's hard because, again, you can't be somebody that you're not. You know, I'm a big believer in order for you to know, to know what you want, you got to know who you are. You understand? And now I think a lot of people get that confused. They think that if I follow this guy's path and I try to be like him, then I know I'm going to get to where I'm trying to go. But... Talk about that, you know, obviously just being authentic. Cause I think, you know, me and Ish was talking about this before you hopped on. She was like, oh man, I love how he wear hats. I love how he he shows pictures of his Jordans and his air masses. And I said, yeah, that's something that, you know, when I see you out on the road, I've always admired because I said, he's being genuine to who he is. He's not really worrying about what everybody else is doing. Like he being true to himself. So just talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, I guess it's probably one of my biggest strengths is that I, um, I'm comfortable with who I am all the way to my core with my faith, uh, with, with my ability to recognize that, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's nine other head coaches in the Big 12. I'm probably the least accomplished, right? Um, many of them have won several games, been to Final Fours, Hall of Fame, National Championship. Great. I'm good enough with who I am. I can't try to be someone else. Uh, and that means that when I walk in and I'm the only Big 12 head coach walking into the gym with a hat on, people might look at me different, but they also know who I am. You know, kids know who I am. And they know when we have these conversations, they're real. Um, you know, I am the coach that gets all the J's. Like, I, I, I'm, on, I'm on a sneakers app too. I'm mad when I miss it. I don't get that got them <laughs> notification. I, I'm upset too. Now, there's some of them I ain't going for. I don't want the $450 off-whites. I'm good on that because I ain't in the resale market, right? <laughs> but but I think what you're saying is that's who I am. It's always been who I was, and I can't let this profession change me. What I say to young people, especially all the time, is the profession has a shelf life. Like, I'm only going to coach for a certain period of time. It's going to be a small percentage of my life. And so I'm not... I'm not going to change who I am for that short period of time, right? I'm going to allow my authentic self to encapsulate and give other people opportunities to see you can be who you are. Uh, I think it was my, my years at GA. 
I had a coach tell me that I should wear long sleeves all the time because I've got tattoos on both of my arms. I thought about it, but then I thought, you know what? I have tattoos. They ain't going nowhere. <laughs> so if not having, if having not, you know, if I can't have tattoos, then I'm probably going to have to do something else for a living. Um, and there are places, right? I understand. I, can't, I wouldn't wear a hat in a business meeting that's going to be at a conference table. I'm not going to wear a hat in an interview. Um, but yeah, I'm a basketball coach too, right? <laughs> it's even, you know, I've seen coaches who, when kids come on visits, they put coats and ties on. I, and I don't begrudge them. That's them. I'm wearing some joggers and a t-shirt because this is how you're going to see me every day. When I come to practice, you're going to see me in joggers and a t-shirt and either some J's, some Air Max or something. And, and I'm going to be the same person I am recruiting you as I am coaching you, as I am mentoring you when you're done playing. I'm going to show up to your wedding in whatever suit you tell me to wear, though. <laughs> but until then, when, when I'm here and I got a chance to, to be myself, uh, I, I don't feel like there's a need to, to, to change uh, just to fit a certain stereotype. Because, again, we all have to be comfortable with, you know, I'm me. And when the, when the, when the job is over, I still got to be comfortable knowing I didn't compromise my values as a man to fit some stereotype that doesn't exist. Mike, what do you say to the listeners that's listening right now? And they say, man, it's easy for him to say that. He a head coach. He's already arrived. He done, he done cashed in. He got the check. He wasn't doing that when he was an assistant. He wasn't walking out there with no hats on and, you know, wearing joggers when he was an assistant. Because if I could do that right now, somebody going to tell me they can't hire me because I'm not, quote, unquote, with the program. I'm not doing what the, quote, unquote, people say I'm supposed to do in the business. So what would you say to those guys that would be kind of devil's advocate to what you just said? I would say first, if they're talking to me, they don't know me that well. <laughs> Partly because from day one, right? Um, I've been told you can't do this job this way. Um, and, and some of it is you just gotta be comfortable that you ain't gonna fit everywhere, right? And, and so you gotta be comfortable saying that's, that's not my role. If, that, if I can't be me there, I don't wanna be there. And, and, and it's hard because we all wanna progress in the profession uh, and that may be why I didn't get the Stephen F. Austin job. I don't know. But I know the job that I got, they accepted who I am. And so don't focus on the things that you can't have being who you are. Focus on being who you are and the people you're supposed to be with, you'll have those opportunities when necessary. And if you try to you know, change yourself, you, you're not gonna sleep at night, right? I don't sleep that long, but I sleep very comfortably because I don't lie to people and I don't ever change, right? So I know that I've done the best that I could to be true to myself and to do the best that I can for this job every single day. Uh, and so, yeah, when I was an assistant coach at 23 years old, when, when I was working at Coastal Carolina, I found me a Coastal Carolina hat and I walked around with Jays then uh, and, and every guy I worked for through the time. And, and I would be with my head coaches. You could ask Mike Young at Wofford. He knows more Jay-Z um, Jay now than he ever did in his life. Because, you know, a lot of head coaches don't like to drive. And I tell them all the time, if I'm driving, we're listening to my music. <laughs> and I'm listening to some, you know, that, that's what I do, man. Um, and, you know, every now and then I might give them a chance to, to, to put some a country music on because I want to learn too, right? I want to evolve. But we ain't about to listen to country for no eight hours up and down this road. <laughs> well, one more thing on appearance because I want to get you – I want to get your thoughts on this 
what about when an individual want to wear their full beard, right? Because again, you know, we're in a clean cut profession. You know, if you're a black man, you got to have a clean cut um, and, and you got to have a clean face. But you know, obviously, man, you that's a part of our culture. You know, black men like to, to show themselves. They like to, they want to have dreads. If they want to have braids, if they want to have a beard, you know, why not? Just like you say with the tattoos, what would you say to a guy that's probably in the predicament of, man, I want to keep my beard, but Man, my boss always tell me I got to keep a clean face. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I would say, you know, you got to work in an environment where you feel comfortable. And sometimes that means sacrificing some money, right? That's the choice we ultimately got to make. How much, how important is it to you that you are who you want to be? And does that mean, you know, I made a choice to leave a university and took about a $15,000 pay cut because I didn't believe in that. I believed in something else. And, and what I was leaving, the, the money wasn't gonna make up for it. I was only gonna be happier on two days, twice a month. But it's gonna be 28 days where I'm kind of miserable. Like, man, this is this really ain't worth it. Um, and so I, I would say that we gotta be comfortable, you know, taking a different route. And there's gonna be, again, there's gonna be that person that accepts you who, for who you are. And, and a little bit less money, can't make up for that that comfort and that peace of mind that you have when you walk into that job every day feeling like you're accepted, you know? Uh, and I'm sure it's the same for females. You know, there's some stereotypes about them, but but they want to, you know, same thing. Like, be who you are and work with people who can value who you are, um, your full self. Um, and if you do that, then again, you know, the money can only make up for so much. Wow, um, that's very empowering. Um, and I think right there, that that's even the essence of Black excellence, being just being you and, and choosing yourself over money, over a paycheck, over a possible, you know, opportunity. Um, so, so thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I'll say this. Like, one thing we got to start to say to ourselves, we're good enough as we are. <laughs> right? No one gets to tell us that we're not. We don't have to accept, I have to be like you to be successful because I don't. Uh, and I've been fortunate and I wish I could preach this message every day to any young person that I want. Do your job well. That's what you should focus on. All the rest of the stuff, they'll be okay with. There was a lot of people who didn't want me to have the Oklahoma State job. M many of them because I was a black male, 35 years old, had never been a head coach before. They didn't say a whole lot when I walked out of Lawrence, Kansas, being the first coach to win in Allen Fieldhouse and then swept Kansas in my first year, it was a little bit easier to accept me because they got to take your guard down. When, when I prove I can do the job, ain't care as much how I look. So coach, um, can you explain like in those moments, so from the time you took the job and you know, you might've had negative, negative comments and stuff, you know, it took a while before you got to the point where you, you know, you had those successful moments. How did you keep yourself, conf how did you continue to have confidence in yourself and to continue to be like, I don't care what nobody say, I'm, I'm good at what I do. Um, you know, how did you accept that, like, in that moment, how did you kind of accept it and then kind of get over it to, to stay focused on, on the job at hand? It really comes down to betting on yourself and believing in what you do. And for me, the thing that's carried me beyond my faith is my work ethic. And 
I just have this, no one outworks me. Somebody might work really hard. And I wasn't working 114 days straight because I, I was worried about somebody outworking me. It was just because I felt like the job still needed to be done. And, and I still work more days than I don't every week. Um, but that mentality is, and, and it really, you know, a lot of people, I would say it was 50-50 at best, right? 50% of people when I first got hired said, ah, what are we doing here? Who's this dude? 50% of people who probably knew me personally was like, yo, give, give him a chance. Um, and so my focus, right, where do you put your energy? It wasn't about proving the 50% that didn't believe wrong. Got no time for them. They're going to be what, fair weather no matter what. When we win, they're going to celebrate. Let us lose two in a row. They're going to be the first ones putting the, the for sale sign in my yard if they can get to it. My job is to focus on the people who believe in me. Put my energy there and try to prove them right. Try to prove that, yeah, there's a reason that he was selected to be the head coach at Oklahoma State without head coaching experience. They didn't just randomly pick him. There's something there. And my job is to make sure that that comes to fruition. I want to highlight how you even got the job without head coaching experience in the first place, right? I was reading something about how the AD hired you because he said you basically was on an interview for 364 days. That's how you got the job. So I want you to talk to our audience about how important it is to represent yourself on a daily basis, no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, no matter if you think you're going to be the next man in, in line or not. Because again, if people go back and they look at your path, they, they will say, man, he's not ready to be a head coach. But obviously within that one year of being Oklahoma State, you showed them people that you now on somebody that can benefit them and help them have success, but you can be the leader in charge. So, so talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind, Coach. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's uh, interesting you say that. It was probably it's probably a month after I got the head coaching job, and I'm talking to the AD, trying to figure out what the program needs and what we're doing staff wise and such and such. And uh, he says, you know what? I've had a lot of people ask me um, what you did in the interview to win the job because everybody else was more experienced than I was going in. Uh, he said, do you know why? And I said, no, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, I often wonder too, because I never thought about being a head coach at Oklahoma State, literally until he asked me to interview. They asked me to interview for the job. And uh, he says, it wasn't the interview. I said, really? I'm thinking I must have killed it in the interview too. <laughs> and he's like, no, actually, you weren't very good at the interview. And that you got to understand my AD to know he's a, just a very straightforward, honest person. And your feelings don't matter. <laughs> right. And so he says, no, he said, you've been interviewing for this job. I've watched you around here, how you interacted with our administration and with the people in compliance and academic services and food services and your staff, the players, uh, how you treat our janitors when you come in the building. You know, those things have value to me. And I could go out there and hire somebody with a name, but I don't know that they have those things. All right. And I trust that you can learn the job. You can be taught how to do something, but you can't change a person's character. And, and really he took a bet on my character and, and what you're saying is true, right? You, you got to stand up with your head high and do your job to the best of your ability every day with integrity. Uh, you got to be a person that doesn't 
cut corners. Do the hard work. Do it. It's going to be much more worth it in the long run. And so for me, it played out in the way of being a head coach at Oklahoma State at 35 years old when I never anticipated it. But I was prepared. Uh, I was prepared because all the years before, not cutting corners told me you can do something hard. Um, and so, you know, I, I was fortunate in that regard. The other thing I would say is being mentored by good people. You know, we talked about Coach Rav and, and how I admired Coach Hamilton. You know, you got you to gotta choose your mentors wisely, right? You got to choose people who you can look at and say, if I was able to do it the way he do it, I would feel good about it. Not that I would succeed the way he did, but I would feel good that I approached this job this way. And for me, it's always been about people. My relationships are numero uno for me. Um, my relationship with God, my relationship with my players, obviously my relationship with my family. So um, there's nothing more important than making sure that those people know that they don't have to worry about my name coming up in the newspaper for having been in the DUI or uh, you know, sexually assault someone or anything like that. Those are things that I'm really, really conscious of um, because I think part of my responsibility, and this is kind of big picture is, there's somebody out there like me. I don't know where they are. I don't know their names. I don't know what they do right now. But in 15 years, they may be in position to be a head coach. And I never want it to come up, my name, the, the reason that they didn't get an opportunity to do something. Coach, you mentioned that relationships are number one. Um, you also mentioned that uh, how hard you work how do you balance your relationships um, or how do you manage your relationships, but also being, you know, really focused on work and focused on the task at hand? I think one of the things um, that Nick mentioned earlier was I don't compartmentalize. Um, my family isn't separate from my job, which isn't separate from my faith. It's all together. Literally when my players come to my house, there could be one of my players upstairs in my house right now. That's the comfort level they have. Many of them will come in, they'll go into one of my kids' rooms. They'll see them reading a book or playing with a toy. And that's the kind of environment that we've created. Those kids feel like this is their house too. And my wife and kids come to practice all the time. And a lot of times my kids, because they're young, they run out on the court thinking that they can do that. My daughter wants to blow the whistle all the time to break practice down. But it's all together. We go to church together. We pray together. Uh, all these things we make out, we do out in the open. We talk about, I love you. And, and, and I think because I don't try to separate them, it's easier for them to go together. Um, they see my wife traveling with us. You know, they know she's gonna be at the game. She's gonna be at practice. Um, they know that when their families come around, they're invited into the locker room, that they're invited to the house. Um, and so I think just fostering an environment every day where they feel truly, we don't say family, we just act like family. We, we truly try to be a family when we're with one another. I mean, I t you know, I joke with them like, don't, you know, don't drink the last of the Kool-Aid and not say nothing. <laughs> don't, don't take and have a little sip left and put it back in the fridge, man. Just drink it and let somebody know we need some more Kool-Aid now. You know? So we have real conversations and I think that helps uh, make all these guys feel comfortable because I, I grew up in a way very many of them did. Uh, and so I know the environments that they come from and I can speak to their, their hearts. I'm interested to hear 
how did those relationships change when you moved the seat over? Because it seems as though for me, it, it don't seem like they did because obviously you're allowing them into your personal space. You know, like you said, this, this is like their house, you know, but did it change? And if it did, what did you do differently to try to, you know, cultivate them in that role that you're in now? Yeah, it did. My first year was the hardest. So the, the initial transition, because there were several guys that I recruited as an assistant coach. So you're hardly ever the bad guy as an assistant coach, right? And when they're doing bad, your job is to pick them up. As a head coach, when they're doing bad, your job is to sit them down. You might still encourage them, but I'm also taking them out of the game. They ain't playing as much, and I'm making the choice, right? So there were guys my first year that I had recruited that started to look at me like, well, what's that about? Like, and it almost became, I didn't do a good enough job of helping the transition, telling them, listen, this isn't personal. I still care about you and love you, but in these 40 minutes of this game, my job is to try to help us win. That means if you ain't doing your job as well, just like any other coach, I got to take you out of the game. And I'm going to try to help you figure out how to be better the next time. But I don't think I handled that as well my first year. I've been better about that here recently. And I think it's reflected in, you know, we don't have as much um, uh, tension in those, in those situations, even though I still recruit a lot of them. I recruit them as a head coach and I tell them, we're going to hold you accountable to these standards. And there's never a deviation from that. Uh, we talk about in our program, respect, appreciation, accountability, and discipline. Uh, we talk about it from the day we start recruiting them to the day they graduate. Uh, and those are things we instill every day so that those lines aren't blurred between what's acceptable and what's not. Coach, when I was um, going to your Twitter, I couldn't help but see all the books that you post because, you know, as you can see my back, I'm a huge reader myself. Um, where did you come from and, and kind of what, what, what role does books play in your personal development or your professional development? Yeah, um, it was kind of like my faith in, in a lot of ways. I was always a, a, a school never was difficult for me. Uh, I wasn't super smart, but, but I, I got, I, I got good grades and I didn't have it to put unbelievable effort in. Uh, but it really wasn't until college and I started to learn myself. And the same guy, the pastor, uh, actually gave me a book by Nathan McCall. It's called Makes Me Want to Holler, uh, The Plight of African-American Man in America. <laughs> um, and it was the first time that I ever read a book without putting it down, read the book that day. And it just inspired, um, it sparked this, this urge for knowledge. I wanted to know more. I ended up, because of that, majoring in African-American studies at the University of South Carolina, got my degree in it. Um, and then it led to wanting to read more, mostly about philosophy and life, but then in about leadership and then about, you know, all different things. So, uh, again, you just need the right person to plant the right seed at the right time and then you got to take it and somebody's got to be patient with you, right? Why you, you may not want to do it. So now in my office, in my house, there's books everywhere. And I give them out all the time. I exchange books with our players, our staff. Uh, I, I gave my whole staff this book on ex called Extreme Ownership, a Navy SEAL book uh, about two years ago. Uh, last year, we read The Infinite Game. Uh, haven't decided what we're going to do this summer. This summer has been a little bit different. Um, so we're, we're trying to figure it out, but, but I love, I love reading. I, I have a thirst for knowledge. Absolutely. It's, it's tremendous. 
Um, there's another one. He's got uh, Start With Why and Leaders Eat Last. Simon Sinek has those same two, those two books as well. Uh, but I just have a thirst for just knowing, just knowing stuff. There's nothing more uncomfortable for me than to be in a place listening to a conversation that I don't know anything about. <laughs> it's the most like crippling, handicapping feeling. And I'm like, oh man, like, and then I go home and I try to do some research. Uh, that's just me. I want to, I, I never want to feel like I couldn't participate because when you don't have knowledge, that's when you can be taken advantage of. And I don't ever want to be able to be taken advantage of. Which I think you started reading them books when your mom, uh, when you got that C on that grid on that report card now. Tell, yeah, tell I, each that story. Tell each yeah, that story. Yeah. <laughs> See, my mom's, um, so my dad played basketball. Um, he grew up with four brothers and four sisters. So he had a big family as well. But sports was big for him. He was an athlete. Um, didn't really play beyond high school because, you know, he went to work when he got out. Um, his dad was gone and him and my grandmother, his mom, basically he became like the father of the family to take care of everybody. But my mom didn't grow up around sports. So she's the baby of 10. And I, I'm not sure, to be honest, that my mom would know today. And I've been around basketball since I was four years old. If the ball is filled with air or feathers. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sure. Right. And I say all that to say, she never ever cared about how I did in athletics. Didn't matter. She showed up to all the games she could show up to. And all she did was cheer. And when the game was over, if we won, she was happy. If we didn't, she was not mad. She just tried harder next time. But academics, you, you couldn't, you couldn't sidestep her there. Uh, and so I got good grades, like I said, most of the time. I think it was my sophomore year in high school, though, that I, um, I got a report card in the fall. And, and I don't even know if I realized it. I got a C in a class, took the report card home. I don't even know if I looked at it, but I gave it to my mom. And you got to know my mom to, to really appreciate this. But she, she didn't say anything to me. But I could tell she was different because she usually wants to talk to me and tell me how proud she is and keep working hard. She didn't say anything. I didn't think anything of it. I go to school the next day and um, I'm in class. And by this time, I'm, I'm being recruited, kind of. I'm getting letters and coaches calling my high school coach. So I'm feeling good about myself, man. I'm going to play basketball. <laughs> this is a big deal. And um, I get a note to the class that I'm in to come down to the principal's office. I know I'm not in trouble. I didn't do anything wrong. So I really wasn't worried. I'm thinking maybe, maybe a college coach is here to see me. That'd be cool. Like I'm really feeling myself. Um, but I'm glad to get out of this class for now. Cool. Let's go down to the principal's office. I get down to the principal's office and the principal's like, Hey, I just, somebody's up in coach Leckie's office, my high school coach to see you. And now I'm really excited. I'm like, let's go. Like, who is it? Is it, uh, you know, the coach at St. John's, the coach at Georgetown, the coach at Seton Hall. Well, you got to walk up four flights of stairs to get to my coach's office. And I get up to the stairs, out of the stairs, and I look down because you can see my coach's office from the stairwell. And there's this shadow kind of in the doorway. And it looks like my mom. You know you can tell your mom pretty much from anywhere. And I'm like, my mom ain't here, not in my coach's office. Like, she would never be at my coach's office. Uh, and as I get closer... I realize it is my mom. And now I'm scared. I'm like, something bad must have happened. Like somebody's sick or got an accident or somebody may have died because there's no way my mom would be up talking to my coach unless she really, you know, had something to say. 
So I walk into the coach's office. My coach doesn't say anything. I try to speak to my mom. She doesn't really say anything. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And to know my mom, you got to understand her. She simply says, coach, we've already talked. Michael, and when my mom said Michael, I knew it was something bad because <laughs> she only called me Mike or Mikey. And she says, Michael, I just told your coach, you got a C in this class and you don't get C's. I told your coach, if you get another C, you will never play basketball for him again. She didn't ask a question. She didn't ask for a response. She didn't wait for one. She turned around and left. And message was received. I never got another C. And she never talked to my coach again until like senior night or graduation or something. But she set a tone. She sent a message that this is priorities, right? Don't, don't get this confused. Basketball is not your ticket out of where we are. It's not going to separate you from the guys who are still here in 10 years or, or doing things that, that maybe put them in position not to have success. Your education is, and that seed was planted before that, but it was reinforced then, and obviously led me to being able to have success as a college student, also. That's funny, Coach. She don't play. At <laughs> she all. Was not playing. No At questions all. asked. Coach, can you identify an, a unique quality, um, professionally or personally, that kind of that separates you um, in your career, and and kind of you know. It's kind of like your gift or mentality that, that kind of attributes to your success as a leader. Uh, you know, if I had to point to anything, I would say that you know, people know whether they met me 10 years ago or 10 minutes ago, that I'm honest um, and that I'm authentic. And I think they feel that and there's a follow-up with it. So I'm consistent with it. Um, and I think that being consistent, no matter who you are, gives you a chance to get credibility. Consistency brings credibility, uh, no matter what, right? If you're, if you're consistently um, ignorant, then that's gonna, you're gonna be credibly ignorant, right? But if you're consistently honest, then you're gonna be credibly honest. And I think that may be the thing that gives me a chance to overcome some of the things that I don't have on a resume, so to speak, is because people know that they can trust me. Coach, I'm gonna change it up a little bit. Um... What stumbling, what are some stumbling blocks uh, that you notice young black coaches in the profession struggle with? And what advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I would say probably the, there's a couple stumbling blocks. One is, and, and I want to make sure this is understood, like recruiting is a really, really important thing. It may be, other than having really good relationships, which lead to good recruiting, may be the most important thing that you do is to have good players. You can't be a good coach with bad players. They, they don't exist. There are no co good coaches that don't have good players, okay? So recruiting is really, really important. It's not the only important thing in this profession though, but so many people have this perception that the only way to be successful as a coach is to be a good recruiter. And if you're a good recruiter, then you're a good coach. That's not true. Being a good recruiter is necessary but you also have to learn that there are a lot of other parts of this profession that you need to have be excellent in. You need to know the rules, first and foremost, right? You need to understand the budget and how it works and why it works and why maybe, you know, you got to go raise money. Uh, you have to understand the academic landscape, APR, eligibility. Um, you have to understand how to scout, 
how do you break down film? What's the expectation on how do you prepare your team to play? How do you practice, right? And so, so, so much of that stuff gets missed because guys have tunnel vision. Uh, and a lot of times what they use an ex- as an excuse is, I'm being pigeonholed. No, N- no one can pigeonhole someone else, okay? Now, someone can give you responsibilities, but only you can pigeonhole yourself. So to be clear, someone may tell you that your job is to recruit and they want you recruiting 99% of the time. What do you do to help yourself? How do you invest in your own development then so that you can learn those other things? Are you asking, even if you're not able to speak, are you asking to sit in those scouting meetings? Are you asking to sit in those compliance meetings? Are you asking to sit in those scheduling meetings so you can learn? Because not everybody does that pigeonholing thing. There's some coaches out there that allow you to spread your wings and learn. Um, so I, I never accept that when guys say I, I've been pigeonholed or we get pigeonholed. No, you can only pigeonhole yourself because you control what you learn. You, you're the only person who can control what you learn. Pick up a book, read, try to figure it out, right? And then you know you'll give yourself a chance. Um, the the other thing is uh, it's so tempting to take shortcuts. Um, you got to try to avoid that. The shortcuts usually lead to a demise, right? You almost never get to your full potential when you take shortcuts uh, along the way. And so don't take shortcuts. Do the hard work. Do the hard work. It's, it's, not, it's not fun all the time, but it's always worth it. Coach, you know, you got some of these listeners now. They mind is like, what, what are shortcuts? What shortcuts? Like, break, break that down a little bit. Give them a couple of examples of what you mean by don't take shortcuts. Yeah, I mean, a couple in, in, in recruiting, right? Um, the scouting service guy can't do your job for you. He, he has nothing at stake. <laughs> when, when we recruit, the only people who have anything to lose are the coaches. If we don't recruit good enough players, then we're going to lose, and we're not going to have our job. The scouting service guys still going to have a scouting service. <laughs> don't try to find a way to cheat to buy the player. Not going to work. You buy a guy, you can't coach him. If I pay you to come to my school, you really, in many ways, own me. Because <laughs> the moment I flip on you, you got me. I can't coach you because I'm worried. What are you going to say when he get mad? <laughs> can't do it. Don't do it. Ain't worth it. If, if you got to pay him, you don't want him. All right? Um, and scouting. Watch the film. Sit down. Watch the game. If it's important, this game, it's got to be important. Your career, again, invest in yourself. Watch the film. Don't take shortcuts. Don't just don't, – don't take the easy way out. Do the hard work. Coach, we we got to be related or something. <laughs> when when you, I I love the idea of like nobody can pigeonhole you, you know what I'm saying? Like it's it's all. And I feel like we we do that to ourselves sometimes. Like we we do it to ourselves. Um, but I want to ask you this: um, when when was that moment as a head coach or an assistant coach where you knew that you had a future or you knew that you could be good in in this profession? What a moment or something successful might have happened. But like, okay, I'm, I'm, I got, I got something going on here. Yeah, there's probably a couple moments that I, I would point to. 
So my first year as a full-time assistant coach was in 2005 at Coastal Carolina. Um, and, I, and I had the task of being that guy to go find players. And, and it's an incredible story. So you only know what you know. So if, I, if I'm going to go recruit, I'm not going to – I'm going to win my first recruit. <laughs> so I, what I do, I went back to Brooklyn, all right? And I, I went back to a relationship that I knew and a guy that could help me. And I recruited a guy who was a little bit of a risk, but he was from my neighborhood and I knew his brother. And so I knew their family and, and took a chance on helping that kid basically go from a guy who people told would never graduate high school to, to not only graduating high school, he got his GED, went to a junior college, got his associates, came to Coastal Carolina, got his four-year degree. And th that's what, in my mind, this is about. It's going back and reaching back down in my community and getting a guy who looked like me, who came from the same struggles I did, and giving him a chance to do what somebody did for me. That's a huge, that was a huge moment for me. Uh, another one would be when I was at Wofford about three years later, and Mike Young left town and told me that I was running practice. And I was like, okay, I guess I can do this. But it takes somebody believing in you. He didn't give me a script. He didn't make the practice plan. He said, I got to go out of town with such and such. You got practice. So what he told me was, I believe you can do this. You, you don't have to check with me. Go do it. And we ran a good practice. And, and, and it was actually a couple of days before game. Wound up winning the game. And that was validation for me that, man, you got a chance to do this because you have some of the tools that it takes to have success. Um, and then, obviously, when I got the head coaching job and was able to stand up there and look out at the crowd as I was introduced, that was a pretty interesting moment for me because it was it was the first time that it set in. You on the clock, bro. <laughs> so all the stuff you talked about work ethic, now is where it's going to show up because, right, and sometimes you can do your job kind of in obscurity. When you get to be a head coach, especially at one in the Big 12, you don't move in silence too much. And, and that's what led me to say, you know what, if people are going to be watching, they're going to see me. That's why I put pictures of my feet up on the plane. Yeah, yeah, I'm here. And, and this is me. And just, yeah, just get comfortable with it. I'm going to be here for a while. <laughs> Coach, last question before we really start wrapping up. I really want you to touch on this because I think if somebody hears you talk, they they say, man, this dude is is pouring out confidence. Like he's just he's just a confident individual, right? Like you said, you're comfortable in your own skin. You're comfortable to your core, right? You're confident in yourself to your core. But with that, can you talk to people how you need to, you know, how you should possess humility within this profession as well? Because obviously we know this business can be cutthroat and you can get humble really fast. So talk about how you obviously move with confidence, but you also move with humility as well. Yeah, uh, I never, you know, the, the confidence is only comes from the fact that I know how hard I work, right? So the confidence isn't about what I think I'm capable of. It's about the work that I put in, right? I believe in myself, but I've been humbled in this business a lot. In fact, probably my lowest moment was in 2012 while working at my alma mater. After four years, we, we didn't get the job done and I got fired. Um, and, and what made it hard was a year prior in May of 2011, I'd gotten married 
and at the time of my fire and my wife was pregnant. And so when I got the head coaching job and I would go around and speak to different groups, Rotary Club here or, or Booster Club or, and, and people would ask me all the time, man, like, you ready for this? Like, you're going to be a head coach and you coaching in the league with Bill Self and Bob Huggins and Ron Kruger. Like, these guys are like real good coaches. I'm like, guys, this is basketball, man. <laughs> like the same game that I started when I was four as a player and been coaching now for 14 years. And like, I've been jobless with a pregnant wife. As a man, there's nothing that Bill Self or Lon Kruger or any other coach can do to humble me more than that, than going home every day and feeling like I'm not providing for my family. So keep this thing in perspective, right? This is still about people. And the reason that I, I feel like we have success is because we keep our focus on developing relationships with the guys. The confidence is about the work, but it's also about that we feel like we're doing it the right way relationally. But it ain't about whether we think we're a better coach. I don't know. I may be the worst coach in the Big Ten. Really don't give a damn. <laughs> We got a postseason ban about a month and a half ago, and 11 out of 13 players on our roster, including the number one player in the country now, who was coming in, who we hadn't done anything for yet, decided they wanted to stick with this program. We won. <laughs> we won. That kid could have went to any other school, could have went to the G League, could have went overseas, but decided because of what he believed about how we do things and his relationship with us. We did win. We won already. We want to know. <laughs> if they don't play the season, I'm going to crown my team national champions. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Coach, um, we, we've had a lot of great people on this podcast, but this episode right here is going gonna, is gonna to help a lot of people. Um, just, I mean, everybody we've had has been authentically themselves, but, you know, you doing it, you know, at a young age, at a high level, um, with the competition that you have, it's just very in, in the confidence and all that stuff is very, um, it's very empowering, I would say. Um, but coach, what do you do to, to stay grounded? If you do get off track, what, what do you do to, to get back on track or to get your head back right? Um, in time? I my mistakes, which I make a thousand of every day. And I ask the Lord for forgiveness. Um, sometimes I lose my temper. <laughs> Um, you know, sometimes I'm not as patient with my kids. Um, you know, sometimes I don't hear my players as much as I need to. And, you know, those are things that I reflect on every day. How can I be a better man, a better husband, a better father, a better mentor tomorrow than I was today? I, I lay my head at night and I ask God to grant me those abilities the next day. Uh, and I start the day by thanking him for waking me up and asking him to give me the courage and strength to go out and live out his will. And that's where everything starts and finishes for me. And more than night, I try to pour that into my own son and, and my, you know, my wife and, and my family and to my players. And, you know, I think because I've been able to keep things in their order, right? There's order in life. Um, you can't compartmentalize, but you do have to order things. Um, that that's why I feel like I can kind of keep myself grounded. The, the other thing I'll say is I think it's important to highlight, right? I don't come from anything. 
<laughs> you know, I didn't start on third base and thought, convinced myself I had a triple. Like that didn't happen, <laughs> right? I, um, I, I, I literally lived with rats and have been poor and went to bed hungry and had holes in my shoes and wore the same jeans three days a week. Like, I know that life. It, it also gives me a sense of comfort, right? Knowing that the profession, the profession can't pay me enough money to be happy. Because happiness doesn't come from money for me. We didn't have anything growing up, but I had a really close family. So I felt love, I felt complete. Um, and I tell people all the time, I told my AD this, like the second week on the job, he asked me, what do we, what do you want to do about this contract? I told him, and I meant this, you can pay me whatever you want. I'll probably do it for less than whatever you are willing to pay me, honestly. And I told him when we had a conversation later on about the standards of our program and whether some guys aren't going to make it, not everybody's going to make it because we're not going to lower the standards to help you make it. Not doing that. So you're going to have to raise your level to meet the standards. We're going to give you a chance, but at some point, if you don't, get up to these standards, then you won't be a part of it. And he said, you sure that's a good idea? I said, listen, if we can't do it this way, I'll do something else. Because I'm not gonna leave this job and look my God in the face and tell him that I didn't do what he put me here to do, which wasn't to win basketball games. I was hired by you to win basketball games, but I'm here to serve the Lord. Which I think we might have to, I'm have to talk to each when we do the editing. We're gonna have to flip this thing and let the end be the beginning because I'm telling you, like that's that's you know again the biggest reason why we did this. Like you said, you come from nothing. You understand? Like you come from nothing. You didn't start on third base, and a lot of us, you know, we we have we lose faith because we don't think we can get to where you are. You understand? And again, I'm not talking about status. I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the mindset. I'm talking about you know, the process that got you to where you are. So, man, again, you are a true epitome of black excellence. And we're so thankful to be able to have the opportunity to honor you, your story, and your testimony. And so, just like you said with your team, if y'all don't play this year, you're going to crown y'all champions. Um, you know, you're sitting on top of the throne with us. We're, we're crowning you, you know, as someone that, that we deem black excellence. So, I will say this, Coach, because, again, I, I know you're going to have a, a, a long, you know, wonderful career um but when that time do come and obviously you step down off that throne you have to pass that crown on to the next young man like you said maybe in chicago brooklyn you know wherever he may be um you know what's that one message you want to leave in there for him that you can you can do it as yourself so so i hit a bunt single kind of broke my back and just ran as hard as i could and almost got caught but the first baseman dropped the ball <laughs> that's how I got on base. <laughs> and once I got on base, that's all I needed, right? I just needed an opportunity to be in the game. And then it's on me not to allow myself to be told what I need to look like, how I should sound. No, work hard. Don't cut corners. And I have an obligation to that young man 20 years from now the same way John Thompson and George Ravlin and John Chaney and Nolan Richardson, right? Tubby Smith and, and all the OGs in our game. They didn't know at the time when they were fighting for Prop 48 to come off the books. 
that they were going to help me. Leonard Hamilton didn't know that him being the first coach would then open the door so Mike Boynton could be the head coach at Oklahoma State. No, he just did the hard work. And he did it in a way that he knew he wasn't going to benefit from. So I'm benefiting from something that those guys did. My job is to make sure that when my grandson has his opportunity, it's better because of what I did while I was here. I want to thank you so, so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast episode. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Rising Coaches for partnering with us and giving us this platform um, to share these amazing stories real quick. Guys, if you are not a member of Rising Coaches and you are in the basketball profession, you want to coach, you're a seasoned coach, you're a beginner coach, it does not matter. I want to encourage you to check out Rising Coaches. Um, join Rising Coaches and become a member of the largest coaching tree in basketball. Over 1,300 members from all levels, high school to NBA, gain access to over 1,000 hours of coaching clinics um, and build genuine relationships with other coaches. Rising Coaches provides the community and the resources that will help you have long-term success in the coaching industry. Please visit Rising Coaches to join or if you got any questions, hit me up.